Amos chapter 4, verse 12, has this to say. Prepare to meet your God. It's the cry of the book of Amos chapter 4. Is, Prepare to meet your God. And as we come to the book of Exodus, that will be the cry of this chapter, of this section. Prepare to meet your God. Thus far in the book of Exodus, we have seen for the first 18 and a half chapters that God has made Himself known through His work of redemption. He's revealed Himself and constantly said, I want you to know me, I want you to know me, I want you to know me. And He's made Himself known primarily through His work of redemption of His people. Beginning in chapter 18, verse 13, we're going to see really the second half of the book of Exodus, where God will make Himself known through His law. God makes Himself known through redemption. In the second half of the book, He makes Himself known through His law. The question, though, is this. How do we prepare to meet our God? How do we do what Amos chapter 4 tells us? Prepare to meet your God. Well, I think this text will give us a couple of instructions in that. Number one, we'll see the second half of chapter 18, verse 13 through 17, that we need to know that we need to hear Him. First, we need to establish a need. We need Him, and we need Him to speak to us. Secondly, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, we come humbly. We come, number one, needing Him, needing Him to speak, Number two, we come humbly to Him. And then thirdly, we must come clean. We must come clean. Chapter 19, verses 9 through the end of the chapter. So with that said, we're just going to dive right in. Our first point, come needy. We need Him. Now, chapter 18, we saw really the, the ending of the first half of the book. God has desired to make Himself known, make Himself known. And we see a priest of Midian. A Gentile comes having heard of all the Lord had done for Israel. This is Moses' father-in-law. I've heard all that God has done. And Moses in verse 8 tells him, this is what God has done. Let me tell you in its fullness, all that he's done. He's carried us through all these difficulties and redeemed us. All working to verse 11 where Jethro proclaims, I know it's been the word of the first half of the book. I know there's none like him. This is a Gentile. The nations, we get a glimmer, the nations will come to know this God. Well, now, there's a lot of debate about how to, debate, how to break up the book of Exodus, but I think the second part of the book starts in verse 13 of chapter 18. And just so you know, we're going to really kind of skim through this Second part of 18, and we're really going to park out in chapter 19. But chapter 18, verse 13 to 27, is where Jethro gives advice to Moses. And there's a bunch of really wonderful practical stuff about division of labor and not burning one person out. But there's a theological point to this text. What is Moses doing? Jethro comes in one day and he sees Moses sitting all day long. And there is a line out the door of people from Israel coming to him. 
And they need to know what has God said. We have these disputes among us. We have these disagreements among us. And all day, from morning till evening, Moses sits telling them, this is what God wants. This is what God has said. You you realize that in verse uh, 15? Moses' father-in-law says, because the people come to inquire inquire to me of God. Moses is the sole one now speaking. This is what God has said. And when disputes arise, all Israel has to come to him. They need to know what God says in verse 16. There's that word again. I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law says, Practically speaking, this is a terrible system. All the people have to come to you, and all day long, all you do is tell them, this is what God said from morning till evening. You're going to burn yourself out. This is too heavy for you. So what you need to do is break this up. Get men that are, that are fearing God, that are men of integrity, that won't take a bribe, and put them over thousands, and put people over hundreds, and over fifties, and over tens. But even those people have to come to Moses to know what God has said. So the the second half of chapter 18 establishes this dilemma for Israel. Israel needs to know what God wants. They need to know God's law. If as a redeemed people they're going to live lives that are pleasing to him, they need to know what he wants. And what has God not done up to this point? He's not spoken. He's not given his law yet. So chapter 18, the second half, really establishes a dilemma for Israel. Israel, as God's people, needs to hear God's voice if they are to please him. And he's not spoken. He's not not spoken to the nation yet. So though this system Jethro establishes is better functionally, it's not going to be sustainable until God directly speaks and says, here's what I want. Here's here's who I am, Israel, as your lawgiver. You realize we're in the same position? We need God to speak to us. You need God to speak to you. If you say, I should live a life pleasing to Jesus Christ, my question becomes, well, what does that look like? How do we know what he wants? How do we know what displeases him? We need him to tell us. If we're to live under his rule, if he's our king, we need him to speak. And guess what he's done? We've opened it this morning. He's spoken. He's made himself known to us. He's given us his law. He's given us, here's what living for me looks like. Apart from this, we're in the dark. Apart from this, we don't know what pleases him. So just like Israel needed God to speak, we do too. And praise God, he will speak to Israel, and he has spoken to us. We have to be people of the book who dig in to know him and know what he wants. All that to say, we're coming to chapter 19. Chapter 19, number two, and this is probably where we'll spend most of our time, is the second point, we must come humbly. In chapter 3 of the book of Exodus, God told Moses at the Mount that he's at right now in chapter 19, I'm going to bring you back here, and you'll worship me on this mountain, and it will be a sign to you. And guess where they end up in chapter 19, verse 1? At Mount Sinai. They come to the mountain of God, 
God has brought them there, and he tells Moses, come up to the mountain, I need to talk to you. And here's what he says to him in verse 4. Verse 4, this is where we'll read, verses 4 through 6. This is really the heart of our sermon today, verses 4 through 6. God is speaking to Moses, and this is what he's going to tell Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine. All the people of the earth are mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak the people of Israel. For them to prepare for God to come to speak, they must come humbly. And there's three things about this that we see here. Number one, we, know, we must be humbled in approaching God as a redeemed people. Verse four, the order is going to be really important here, and we'll come back in a moment. But notice where he starts. You're a redeemed people. You are a freed people because of my work. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen. Israel, you have witnessed firsthand. You've tasted and seen firsthand, experienced my redemption. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. You saw all of the signs, how I single-handedly brought them to their knees. I caused the sun to stop shining. I caused the firstborn to die. I caused the waters to come back upon them. You've seen how I destroyed them. But then notice how he's treated them. They've seen how he's... I bore you on eagle's wings. The picture here is of an eagle, and an eagle will stir up its nest. When the, when the, the baby eagles need to learn to fly, the, 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 the eagle will stir up the nest so they have to leave. And if one of the eagles doesn't learn to fly, the mother will swoop down and do what? Catch it and carry it. And that's the picture here. Israel, you've seen how I've carried you on my back. I have brought you out. You've done nothing to contribute to it. You've done nothing to, to, to help me and aid me. I've carried you. It's been grace. You're a redeemed people because I've been a gracious God of redemption. You've seen how when I came down to destroy the firstborn, you were spared because of the blood. You've seen how the waters that destroyed the Egyptians, I parted for you. You've seen how I've provided water and food for you in the wilderness every day, manna coming down. You've seen how in chapter uh, 17, I defeated the Amalekites. I've carried you. You're mine because of my redemption. And Israel knows we didn't do anything. We couldn't, we couldn't free ourselves from Egypt. We couldn't defeat the Amalekites. We couldn't make bread fall from heaven. God has done it all. What, what do we have to boast in? God. We come as a redeemed people. And notice, he, he doesn't end there. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to my. This is not a reference to them physically coming to Sinai, but relationally coming to God. Israel has been restored to the presence 
of God, relationally brought to God Himself, brought near to God. In the garden, because of sin, Adam and Eve and all humanity is exiled, away from the presence of God. Throughout the book of Genesis, you'll, you'll see the movement is always east, 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 east. The door of, of, of Eden is facing east, and humanity is just going further and further and further and further. And here, God is restoring His presence. He's bringing them near to Himself. And what has the blood of Christ done? It's brought us in. It's brought us in. He's redeemed us to Himself. We need to be coming to Him humble because He has done the work of redemption. Secondly, we come humbly in a position, a posture ready to obey. Look at verse 5. Now therefore. The therefore is very important. In light of your redemption, he establishes first grace and salvation, to use New Testament words, and then law. The order is important. He doesn't say, you do the Ten Commandments, I'll do the Ten Plagues. You obey and I'll save. He says, I did the ten plagues, I saved you, you're free, you're redeemed, now ten commandments. The order's important. If we just say, obey, 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 and God will love you, it's crushing. How much do I have to do to be good for Him? How much do I have to do to please Him? It crushes people when we try to get morals before salvation. Redemption precedes law. You're right with God because of the work of Christ. Now, He saves us to live for Him. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. I'm going to speak in the position I need you to be in. The, the posture I need you to be in is ready to obey. Look down to verse 8. This is before God said any of the commandments. When you get to verse 8, he hasn't given them the law yet. But notice their response. All the people answered together and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, what has he told them to do? What's the answer? I don't know. Well, notice what happens. They know him. Their commitment to his person precedes their commitment to his command. They know that he is the sovereign. They know, they have seen firsthand, He's the God who is over all creation. He's the God who's over the waters and the land and the sky. He's a good God. He's cared for us. He's saved us. He's freed us. So because they know His person, they're committed to Him as their King, whatever He says, they're in a posture of saying, we'll do it. That's often the way it is when we come to Christ, is it not? When I became a Christian, I didn't know everything Jesus wanted me to do. But I had heard that I am guilty before Him. I, I knew enough about what He wanted. I knew I had sinned against Him. But I, I had heard that He died for my sins. That His blood was spilled to wash me of my sins. That He had risen from the grave. So He must be authoritative. And He's good and gracious and kind so whatever he says, I'll bow the knee to him as Lord because he's good and he's king. So Jesus, whatever you want, I'll do. I said that before I knew everything you wanted me to do. 
My commitment to his person preceded my commitment to the actual command. Same with Israel here. They come humbly. They come saying, Lord, when you speak, we'll do. Because they knew he's the king. Is that our posture when we come to his word? Is it, is it Lord, help me find in your word a way to approve what I want to do? Lord, help me find more theological nuggets so I can win the theological argument against my theological opponent. Is that how we come to his word? Or do we come saying, Lord, you're king. I need to hear you. I need to know what you want and who you are. And whatever you say, Lord, help me understand and help me do. Is that our posture? Notice also in this text, he says, if you keep my covenant. What in the world does that mean? Israel's already in covenant with the Lord. Abraham was given a covenant that he would, he would be a blessing to the nations. He would make a great, God would make a great nation out of him. Anyone who cursed him, God would curse. Blessed him, God would bless. Israel, through the line of Isaac and Jacob, these 12 tribes are in covenant relationship with God. So I think Moses is linking back and saying, you're already in covenant. Throughout Genesis, you'll, when he talks about the covenant with Abraham, he uses, keep my covenant. But he's also going to link forward to chapter 20 through 24. So what's about to happen is God is going to not give a new covenant as much as expand, heighten, deepen their understanding of what it means to be in covenant with him. Another stage in covenant development. So if you do this, here are the blessings that you'll enjoy. You shall be my treasured possession. We could honestly park out the remainder of our sermon here and we would not lose anything because this is such a sweet idea. This, this phrase is used throughout the Old Testament of a king's private wealth, what he privately owns, what's, what's most precious to him. And notice what he says, all the earth is mine. I own the Himalayas, I own the Alps, I own the Nile and the Mississippi. I own all the people that are in Indonesia, and I own all the Canadians. Everything in the earth is mine. It's all mine. I own it all. My most prized possession. It's all, it's all my crown, but the crown jewel, the most precious thing to me, my people. Well, I wish he would just say that about us as well. Well, guess what? He does. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says this, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, which we'll see in just a moment. A holy nation, we'll see in just a moment. A people for his own possession. Why did God prize Israel? Was it because they were bigger than all the nations? It's because they were better and more moral than all the other nations? Deuteronomy 7 says that's actually the exact opposite because he's set his love upon them. Why does he love us? Is it because we're better than anyone in the world? Is it because we're more deserving of his love than people? No, because he's loving and he sets his love upon us. We're treasured. We're precious. We're valuable. Whenever circumstances in your life or your own emotions ask the question, how could God love me? Look to the cross. Christ died 
Yes, to glorify the Father and bring Him honor, but He died for you. The value of your soul is seen at Calvary where Christ pours out His blood for your soul. He dies for you. His love is unchanging and unchangeable towards you if you're in Christ. He says, if you obey, you'll enjoy all the blessings of being my treasured possession. Secondly, he says, that you'll be to me a kingdom of priests. A priest in the Old Testament was a mediator. They went between God and the people. Just think about what the priests wore. We'll get there in chapter 28. They have uh, this blue, scarlet, and purple linen on their, their robe. The Holy of Holies made out of blue, purple, and scarlet. They have a gold uh, sign on their turban. And the inside of the Holy of Holies is all gold. When the priest comes out, it's to be a sign to the people. There's a representative of God. But what else does the priest carry into the Holy of Holies? He's got two stones on his shoulder. And on each shoulder, there's six names and six names. All 12 of the names of the tribes of Israel. On his breastplate, there's 12 stones, each with a tribe of Israel. He carries the people into the presence of God. The priest is a go-between, bringing God to the people and the people to God. The sacrifices, God is near to the people because there's been atonement made and the people are near to God, and the priest is the one who mediates that. And it's not just a priest here. He's saying the nation of Israel is a nation of priests. They, in their relationship to the world, are missionaries. We've been saying throughout the book of Exodus, God has a missionary heart. He wants to be known. And baked into the very DNA of who his people are in the Old Testament, they are missionaries. They are to represent God to the world. The way that God will make himself known to the world is through his people in the Old Testament. And the way the nations will be brought to God is through his people. And we just read in Second or First Peter chapter two that we, the church, are a nation of priests. Our relationship to the world is ambassadors. We're telling the world of God. Here's who He is. We're saying, "Come, be reconciled to God through Christ, bringing the world to God and God to the world." He continues, "You shall be a holy nation." The very essence of who they are is to be a reflection of who God is. The way they live is to be distinct from the world. What is appealing about Israel is that they're different. The nation should look at Israel and say, there's justice in their land. The, the nation should look at Israel and say, they worship one God, no idol. The nation should look at Israel and see what it means to love your neighbor, as Leviticus 19 says. And they should look and say, we don't act like that. Why do they? And that draws them. Just consider how different this would be to the world if we understand treasured possession, where, where, where the person sitting next to me is someone I see through the lens of they're treasured to God. How differently we would speak about them and to them and treat them. And when that starts happening, how different when the world looks in and says, why do you act that way? Why do you love each other that way? And we say, because of him, a witness to the world. So we come humbly. We're redeemed. We come 
ready to obey under His authority, under His covenant. Lastly, number three, we must come clean. God is going to come down. Verse 9, He tells Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you. I come to you. Verse 10, He'll say to Israel, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. God is coming down. The one who made everything, the stars, the moon, the earth, all the people, all the stuff we can't see yet with our telescope, he made it all. He's coming down. He's going to meet with his people. Amos chapter 4, prepare to meet your God. Israel must prepare to meet their God. And what must they do? They have to consecrate themselves. They must make themselves clean. We don't have a whole lot of detail in this text about what they have to do to make themselves clean, but the idea is they have to be ready. A holy God is about to descend upon a mountain, and they have to meet with him. And they can't meet with him if they're not clean. They have to be clean. So we must be clean. And we'll get to that in a second, how we become clean. But we must be clean as well. Look at, look at the text, what it tells us about God, before we look at how we consecrate ourselves. Look at what it tells us. It tells us that God is holy. He's going to come down, but he can't be approached. In verse 12, they have to set limits around the mountain. They, they can't come all the way up. If they come up, they'll be put to death. If you cross these or even touch these boundaries, you'll be stoned or shot with probably an arrow. And if your beast, your animal, some animal touches the boundary, it will be put to death. Coming to this God is scary for Israel. He's holy. Holiness doesn't just mean he's morally perfect, though it does. It means he's completely other than. He's completely different. He's set apart. He's not like us. He's above us. Israel is approaching a holy God. Israel is coming near to a God who is holy, who's different, who's pure. And they must make themselves clean, consecrate themselves. There's boundaries. And then God's going to come down. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. God comes down and there's loud sounds, and there's bright flashes of light. He comes down in verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. God comes down in His glory. His full glory comes down. Not only is Israel shaking, but the same word of Israel is used of the mountain. The mountain is shaking. This God that comes down is, is not tame. He's not like us. He's not made in the image of Israel. He's different. 
He's different. He's holy. And Moses has to go back up in verse 21. And the Lord tells him the same thing. Make sure the people don't come up. Let me just reiterate. Make sure they don't come up because I'll break out against them in verse 22. What does that mean? The only other place break out against them is used is in 1 Kings 6 with Uzzah. Remember Uzzah? He's the one when the ark falls, he reaches out and the Lord breaks out against him. Strikes him down. As R.C. Sproul famously said, Uzzah assumed that the dirt was cleaner than his hand. A holy God comes down to his people and his people can't dwell with him because they're sinful. They must be made clean. They must be made right. They can't approach. But notice, just looking back at the text, though the people can't approach him, what does God ask them to do? Approach him. There's a don't come all the way up, but come. He and this God who is holy still is inviting. He's telling them, come up. Just don't come up too far. You can come. I want you near but you can't come because you're not right. You're not clean. You can't come all the way up. But notice there's grace even in this text. He comes down in his full glory. He doesn't diminish his glory, but he veils his glory. Smoke covers the mountain. Because God, if God shows his full glory to them, it would consume them. So he veils it for them. There's grace in the boundaries. If you come up too far, you'll die. So don't come up too far. I'm giving you grace. Don't, I want you to come near, but not too near. So here, here's where we come to the end of this text, and we say, well, this is tough. Like we have a God inviting us, but we can't come. A God saying come near, but we can't come too near. A God saying be made right, but you're not right. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just come and see wouldn't it be nice if we had access to him? Wouldn't it be nice if we knew that we could approach him clean? Brother Luis read for us Hebrews 12, which references this text, where, they, where he uses all this language. God came down with smoke and fire and thunder and lightning, and the people trembled, and Moses trembled, and the mountains trembled, and they couldn't come near. And then the text turns in Hebrews, and what does it say? but we have a better covenant. We have Christ who has come down. We sing the song at Christmas time, which I wish we could sing it all year round. We tried it once before in a different church and it was weird singing a Christmas song in July, but veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. God comes down and he veils his glory coming down among us, making the Father known, living a perfect life, and going to the cross and bearing all of our guilt, bearing all of our shame, bearing all of the judgment we deserve, shedding His blood, rising from the grave. And when He does that, when He dies, what happens in the temple? The veil is torn. God before was... was dwelling, his glory was dwelling behind a veil in the Holy of Holies, which had two cherubim on the outside of that veil. Just like the two cherubim guarding the presence of God in Eden. And it's torn. Access has been made for us to not just go up to the bottom of the mountain, but to come up 
to where the smoke is. The smoke is lifted so that we can come near. You say, but we still need to be made clean. And that's what Christ does. His blood washes us. They had to consecrate themselves and wash their garments. In the book of Revelation, chapter 14, or chapter 7, you have garments washed in his blood. You've been made clean. You've been made ready to come and meet your God. Not because of your effort, not because of your law keeping, not because you're a wonderful man or woman, but because Christ makes you clean. Because Christ satisfies the demands of a holy God for you. And he says, come. But don't stop at the bottom of the mountain. Come into the holy of holies with boldness. Come in. Not because God has changed. God has not become a little more lax in his old age in the New Testament. He hasn't aged at all. And his requirements haven't been lowered at all. They've been satisfied in Christ. And he says, come. Come. Christ reveals God, makes God known, and he fully restores us into the presence of our King. All that we read here, it's beautiful. This God is awe-inspiring. But we're left wishing we could see more. And in the New Testament, he says, come in. Come in. Don't just come to the mountain. Come up the mountain. He invites us. Just a couple of points of application before we end. Number one, I think we must restore to the modern church a full understanding of who God is. We have made the modern God far too much like us. He's far too much just friend and not holy. He's far too much just, just happy-go-lucky all the time, and there's no sense of fear of him, no awe, reverence of him. The God of us today is the same God that came down on this mountain. He's holy. He's totally other than. And though we approach him boldly, we approach him reverently. He is a holy God. We must regain this if we're to have awe-inspiring worship. We must regain this if we want to restore a holy living in our life. We must regain this if we are going to present a God that is not just like everybody else around us. He's holy. He's holy. And that's the standard we measure ourselves up by. It's not, am I better than the people around me? It's, am I holy like he's holy? And the answer is no. That's why Christ came. It's because we fall short of that glory. And Christ, Christ is the one who pays the penalty for all of those sins and restores us to him. We must restore an image of God that is full, both he's friend and he's holy. He's king and he's savior. He's loving and he's just. We must regain this. Secondly, we, when we approach, we come boldly, we come reverently, we come humbly, and know this, we come confidently clean. Praise God. Because of Christ, you come clean. The consecration you need is not found in rubbing your clothes with anything. It's not found in bathing your skin in anything. It's not found anywhere but coming to the person of Christ and saying, I'm guilty. I'm unclean. Make me clean. And he says this. He does. 
Anyone who comes, he doesn't cast out. Anyone he, who comes, he washes clean. You need to hear God. I need to hear God. We need to meet with God. And the news of this text is you can. You can because of Christ. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we come into your presence. And we thank you, Lord, that you coming down veiled on the top of the mountain in smoke, and in your Son you have lifted the smoke. We praise you that though we come to the garden and it is guarded by two cherubim, we come to the Holy of Holies and it is veiled, we praise you that your Son tore the veil and opened the doors for us to come in. We praise you that though we are unworthy to come in, our sin mars us and makes us unclean. We praise you that your Son cleans us. Father, we still need to hear your voice. We still want to live under your authority. And as you speak, help us to live lives pleasing to you. Not to earn your favor, but because we know that in your Son we are your precious possession. We praise you for the work of our Savior. We pray that we would live under our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.